it's just, it's feeling like summer all around and like, why should you ever do work when it's delightful outside? <laughs> Welcome to Pursuing Call, a place where we explore what God is up to in our lives so that we can participate in God's mission for the world. Find out more at pursuingcall.com. Let's get started. Yeah, so so I'm Hannah Lundberg. I use she, her pronouns, um, and I'm a Presbyterian pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I've been here about two years and I do kind of a lot of different things in my role here, but I do some stuff with college students and with our social justice group and our diversity and inclusion stuff and our young adult groups and with some of our work with refugees. And one of the things I'm sort of excited on the cusp of is working on some new ideas for worship models that are more more engaging of more voices of the congregation rather than just clergy blabbering along up front. Um, so that's something I'm really excited for, but, um, I don't know. I I really like the work that I get to do. And I think, um, I was sort of drawn to ministry for wanting there to be more spaces where kind of progressive clergy who are ready to engage issues of social justice and radical love, um, would, would carve out more space for folks like that. And I was like, we need more clergy like that. Cause I've been, I've loved, meeting those that I have met. Um, and so went to Union Seminary with you and um, have really enjoyed, I don't know, trying to kind of take that ethic with some of the things that I do. So um, so more recently, I've gotten on TikTok and wanting to kind of explore what that looks like, um, particularly because mm-hmm. I think there's so many people who don't have easy access to, you know, who maybe have one image of what religious communities or Christian communities might look like. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad for those communities that I get to be a part of, but wanting to think about almost in an evangelizing it kind of way of like, there's a lot of ways to love God and be in relationship with others in, in religious communities. And so in some ways, TikTok has been an interesting place to uh, say some of that more broadly and um, have people Mm -hmm. be like, what? I've never seen a pastor like this. So that's a little bit of me. <laughs> That's awesome, Hannah. I really appreciate that. This is there's so many things that we can cover right now. Yeah. So we're gonna try to get this in a way that is still rep- respectful of your time. But let's start here. Wait, remind me of where you are in the country. I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So right by the University right. of Michigan. Right by the okay. Uh I used to go to Ann Arbor because I lived in no. Deanna Heights was in Adrian, in Adrian, okay. Michigan, uh-huh. which is about 40 minutes from Ann Arbor. Uh-huh. But we would drive to Ann Arbor because the coffee shop there at the Barnes and Nobles was open till 9 p.m. Oh. <laughs> and the one in Adrian, or 10 p.m. sometimes even, yeah. and the one in Adrian stayed open until about 7 or yeah. 8. It is so a well we things on college student schedules in this town, which I really appreciate. Um, so because you're in a college town, is that, but you are also in the Midwest. And I know Michigan, while it can be progressive in some of its big spaces, it's, um, you know, Detroit or something like that. But even there, there's like, I just learned the nuance of Midwest culture in terms uh-huh. of what they, what, what Midwesterners might call progressive spaces. 
And what I called progressive spaces were very yeah. different experiences yeah. for me when I went to Bowling Green State. So, um, <laughs> how are you feeling, especially because you just came from Union, which are, uh, we talk a lot about Union and it's liberation theology focused yep. and coming from Union to Ann Arbor, how's life? How are you doing? How's your heart? <laughs> yeah, uh, great question. <laughs> I, there, I mean, there's really a culture in Ann Arbor of there's a, it's a lot of highly educated, highly educated white people who think that they're really progressive. Um, and, mm-hmm. and many of them are relatively progressive. Um, but there's sort of a cultural culture of perfectionism around here, sometimes in the city broadly, and also in my church specifically, um, that I think where I sometimes notice kind of some of the markers of white supremacy culture that we talk about at Union showing up in some of that um, highly educated elite perfectionism culture. Um, So there's things about that that are sometimes kind of difficult and, um, you know, and where I'm often trying to kind of bring people along towards like, hey, it's not embracing progressive values as people of faith is not about like using all the right terminology or getting everything absolutely right every time. It's more about kind of a holistic, um, there's, there's a liberation that can be liberating also for the people who are like, oh my gosh, I've only ever gotten straight A's and everything has to be perfect, um, towards more abundant life that can be kind of free of some of that perfectionism. So, um, so, so that's a dynamic. I also just miss New York city in general, um, for all the reasons that New York is lovely. Um, but it's a, I mean, and also terrifying, but it's yeah. And also terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Ann Arbor is a a fun place to be though. You know, it got, has nice Mm -hmm. college town vibes and, um, Mm -hmm. places to go and, and a lot of good people who have been in a lot of other parts of the world. When I've been in other parts of the Midwest, sometimes, I think people's perspectives might be a little bit limited by I've only ever, you know, been inside the state of Iowa or something Mm -hmm. to college Mm -hmm. in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and in Ann Arbor, there's a lot of people who've been a lot of different places, but still sometimes kind of through that um, elite mindset that shapes it in a different way. (laughs) Yeah. I, it's bringing up, this is not what I specifically said I was talking, would talk to you about, but it makes me think a lot about um, this cancel culture perfectionism is, is coming up a lot for me right now. I think mm-hmm. as I get older, um, some of the hard line ways that I would push against things like, oh, you're being white supremacist, you need to go do your work. Like that mm-hmm. question of do your work, um, especially when you link it to a Christian tradition mm-hmm. of grace. hmm how how do we find the question I've been struggling with is to is that for me the imperfection is the work yes like yeah and that and that will say to people oh you need to go do your work and I was like no 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 me figuring out how to be in relationship with you even though I caused mm-hmm. harm mm-hmm. that's the work that's actually the work yes. <laughs> it's not me going yeah. on Google now by myself <laughs> and educating myself in my own little bubble yep. of idiots who yeah. also probably taught me how to say the thing that I said that was harmful in the first place. Right, right. On this topic, they might be brilliant people otherwise. But on this topic, mm-hmm. clearly I have not been exposed. And mm-hmm. so the balance of not wanting to repeat harm or make people who have been harmed responsible for my learning, but also like how do I figure out and create graceful spaces mm-hmm. 
where we can actually do the work. And where I, you say I, you harmed me, and I say, "Wow, I see that." Yeah, this is where I'm coming from. Where are you coming? Like, t- or tell me more about how that, what that was. <laughs> like, yeah. So that I can not repeat that behavior and yep. do better next time. But in a perfectionist world, either people just say all the right things mm-hmm. and then do nothing actually mm-hmm. effective or helpful. Or they say all the wrong things and then are mad when they're called mm-hmm. out on it and then never grow. Yeah. And so there's, it yeah. feels like we're in this place where we're just like, go do the work, cancel culture, be perfect. And if you do anything wrong to harm people, mm-hmm. then you're now canceled. And it's just, yeah. yes, there's a level of canceling that should happen for certain people because mm-hmm. we don't need to talk about the person that's running for president in the second time. <laughs> but like, yeah, there's, there's also this other place that I feel like as people of faith in church spaces that we could create that allows for more grace and space and learning and growth. Sorry, that was my long thesis, but no, I just, it's, it's sparking that it's for all, me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's the core of so much of it. And I think in my time here, trying to figure out how to teach people how to receive and give grace to one another. And I don't mean teach people as if I'm the grand master of all things, giving and receiving grace. I'm learning a lot of things too, but um, try to have those kind of conversations is really helpful. And sometimes I think recognizing like, we're not going to be the best church at any insert, any topic recently. We, you know, so like I'm part of the queer community and that's like a little, you know, I've been able to push some things forward within this congregation with some of that, but it also is, you know, not, it is not the most LGBTQ inclusive church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I've had some mm-hmm. conversations with people who are like, why don't we have more queer people who want to come to church here? And, um, and then the same thing gets repeated with people of color and different, you know, um, and I, you know, recently had a conversation with some people about, well, maybe we are the church for people whose whose kids are part of the LGBTQ community and they need a graceful space where like the church is not going to be absolutely perfect on a lot of things. And it's maybe mm-hmm. not, you know, if, if I had a friend moving to Ann Arbor who was like, where should I go to church for a great experience as a member of the LGBTQ community? I don't know that I would recommend my church. I might recommend my church for some other reasons. But if Mm -hmm. I had someone who said, I'm new to Ann Arbor and my grandchild is part of the LGBTQ community and I'd like to be part of a church where there will be some space for conversations about that, that will affirm my grandchild, but where I, as the grandparent who doesn't know that much, can ask questions and not be causing harm, we would be a great place for that. And similar things come up around, you know, oh, like we only have a handful of black people at this church. How do we get more to come here and trying to figure out how do we more say, okay, we are a predominantly white congregation. How can we make space to do the work, but also to have grace for, you know, we're not going to get everything perfect and we don't have to get every, like, we're not going to, we're not going to move forward if we're trying to be like, we will not ever make any mistakes. And learning how to and it's like place for your mess. Yeah. Sorry, I had cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying learning how to recognize our limitations and offer grace to one another. I just this is why I liked you in class, Hannah, because you're smart, right? There's this um there is this way in which I think we have developed an idea that having a DEI justice 
pastel world means that we are going to look like the United Colors of Benetton throughout the entire world. Yeah. And that is not necessary for it to be a place where people can explore the mess of whatever, right? I love this idea of like, we may not be the church for the queer kid, but we are the church for the grandparent mm-hmm. who <laughs> needs to, to, to struggle with what does Jesus have to say about my, I want to love my grandchild. I was, mm-hmm. I love Jesus. I was taught in this way. What might be another way for me to understand Jesus mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I can love my grandchild for who they are. Mm-hmm. That seems my, I got goosebumps. Like that seems like even more the calling of the church today than mm-hmm. some of the other things we try to say. Mm-hmm. As an Episcopalian, we love to be like, LGBTQ people, come on down. Yeah. We'll welcome you. But it doesn't mean that we did the work. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not if we're in like these parts of the countries or if we're predominantly this group of people or if mm-hmm. we're predominantly blah, blah, blah. Or now we're going to pit LGBTQ issues against racial issues. And now yeah. we're going to have a war between those two groups of people. And instead of saying like, oh, I don't know much about this topic and you do, like this this community knows how to work through people who are a little bit confused and need to figure out their theological understanding of justice. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that just gave me chills. So I, was, I just really yeah. appreciate you for that. How did you get so smart, Hannah? Who, um, where'd you start your, <laughs> how'd you get to here? Where did you start off? Where'd this calling start? Yeah. Uh, well, so I, like I grew up in Southern California um, and, you know, in, in good public schools and in a mm-hmm. pretty conservative evangelical church um, where my family was deeply involved and I really loved church and loved God. But there were a lot of things in my church growing up that were like, oh, like we were only focused on like the the comfort of the people in the room and um and and only the comfort of the people who are expected to be in the room. Um, even though there were, you know, queer kids in the room, there, you know, that comfort piece was ignored. Um, I don't know. And so so there were things about that that were difficult growing up. And I went to college, I went to Grinnell College in Iowa, small liberal arts college for undergrad. And in college, I was like, I got to find a church that is more progressive and like excited to engage social justice issues. So I visited a million churches in town. And I mean, it's a tiny town of like 9,000 people, but there's remarkably like mm-hmm. a number of quite lovely progressive churches in that town. And ended for up- now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, ended up at First Presbyterian Church of Grinnell and absolutely loved the pastor there. And also really loved like on campus, I was involved with our like Center for Religion, Spirituality, and Social Justice was what the chaplain's office was called. And we had a chaplain and a rabbi who both did like all sorts of awesome interfaith conversations and stuff. And I loved those. And I love I was an English major and I loved analyzing texts, but I was like, ooh. I could analyze religious texts and then it like feels like it means more in a certain way. Um, so I, I mean, at the end of undergrad, I was like, maybe I want to go to seminary just to like try to keep learning more. Cause I like being in school. Um, and I went to union wanting to be in a place where, you know, where we could kind of engage some of those issues of liberation theology and like, how do you mesh the theological concepts you believe in theoretically with like the real world suffering of the world and places that are just like horribly 
you know, situations in the world that are horribly unjust and feel like, how could God be present in the midst of this? And I felt like union was, was in theory and in practice, a good place to kind of engage some of that while also recognizing that like no institution is perfect and anywhere that is trying to be like, we're going to be a bastion of like progressive mm-hmm. values, it inevitably will fall short. Um, but I feel like the people at Union were a huge place where I learned more from folks like yourself and others in our classes who would ask critical questions and engage things on a different level. And that was that was so powerful for me. But there's a, a patient that you have because um, you you keep talking about this way in which to like meeting people where they are mm-hmm. and I guess I want to know how is that something that is true for you like your whole life did you have to learn it how'd you get to there mm-hmm. hmm. you seem like a meet people where they are and then just nudge rather than a <laughs> kind of energy <laughs> Yeah. Well, I hope so. That's an energy I'd like to embody. Um, I don't know where I got that, but I think I got that from, from people who were patient with me and met me where I was and, um, you know, were open to questions. I think an openness to questions has been a core piece of my faith. Even from when I was a kid, like we'd get in the car after church on Sundays and my parents would like fully engage my brother and I towards like, what didn't you like in the sermon? What did you think was weird? Let's talk about it. Um, And so some things like that were really, I think maybe fostered an openness in me, but it's, I mean, it's an ongoing where I'm definitely not the most patient person. And there's a lot of places where I'm like, I want to meet you where you're at, but I'm so frustrated. I, I guess, a lot of folks don't see evangelical spaces where there is a lot of space for questioning to happen and so that that's kind of an amazing thing maybe because y'all are from California but (laughs) even having even being in a stronger evangelical space where you have parents that said Mm -hmm. what didn't you understand or what didn't vibe with you with you Mm -hmm. knowing that you had your own approach to the conversation feels like uh, a step in like a, a a really kind of amazing step in some ways mm-hmm. that helps to form who you are today. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. such a gift, and I'm really I'm grateful that my parents like set me up in that position, and 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 that my parents have continued to be good like questioners of the faith spaces they've been in. So, um, mm-hmm. when I was early in college, the church I grew up in made explicit what had been implicit for a while that LGBTQ Mm -hmm. folks were not welcome as active. I mean, I don't know if they said it quite that way, but they said it in such a way that it was like, oh, this is a a line in the sand. Um, And at that point, we are following the biblical tradition. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And at that point, my parents decided to leave that church, even though it was where like all their friends were um, and they started going to an Episcopal church. And so now the whole rest of my family is Episcopalian and I'm the lone Presbyterian, but. <laughs> we will welcome at any time, but also yeah. <laughs> I'm not recruiting. I think people should find their own path. Um, what drew you to the Presbyterian church? What drew you to that traditional? Yeah. Uh, well, a huge piece of it was Kirsten Klepfer, the pastor of First Pres Grinnell, who's just an incredible human being and just really 
engaging and lovely. And she did, she did and does a lot to really engage some of the particular social justice issues of rural central Iowa. Um, and so she's done a lot of stuff around how to make better mental health access and food insecurity in the particular ways that it presents itself in central Iowa. Um, and so a lot seeing the way that she interacted with faith and interacted with her role as a pastor, I was like, oh, I want to be part of that. Um, but then the when I started asking questions, because I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church, when I was going to go to seminary and start pursuing an ordination process, I was like, okay, I really like Kirsten, but that doesn't necessarily mean this is the right denomination. So I asked a lot of questions about a lot of denominations and kind of looked into different things. And ultimately, one of the things that I like most about the Presbyterian Church is the way our polity is set up, that we kind of divide power pretty equally between pastors, clergy, and we call them ruling elders in the Presbyterian tradition, um, and deacons, which are also a, a lay group in the Presbyterian Church. Um, and so, you know, at every council level of the church, whether it's, you know, at the local church level or the regional presbytery or the whole country general assembly, there's equal power shared between lay people and clergy. Um, and I think that's really important. And in practice, you know, as all institutional things are, some of that doesn't work out as equally as it might in theory. Um, but that really drew, to, drew me. Um, and I also really appreciate within the polity of the Presbyterian Church, I think there are healthy checks and balances on um, like clergy power, both so that clergy can't take advantage of their congregation very easily, and also so that congregations can't take care, can't take advantage of their clergy as easily. Um, and obviously that still happens in both directions all the time, because um, we're all messy people and institutions. Um, but I, I felt more safe entering the ministry in some ways in a structure that kind of looks out for some of those things um, as a denomination while still having a lot of freedom within individual churches to make decisions about things. Yeah, I've been um, thinking a lot about power dynamics of clergy and lady. And mm -hmm. I had a moment where I realized like as a church, what we have done is that as we have uh, expanded the tent of welcome beyond white educated men of a certain generation and economic status. We keep putting up roadblocks about what powers, mm -hmm. what level of church has access needs to be at that level in order to access power. Like back in the day, you know, the women did all the charity work. And so, yeah, go ahead and do that stuff. That's great. But as they evolve into formalized nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We might need a clergy person to fill yeah. this role. Like, yeah. You never needed a clergy person before to fill that role. <laughs> you know, it has some prestige. So. Um, and so it just, it's, it's been interesting to me to watch the ways in which we keep pushing towards a clergy model. Mm -hmm. And, and because we remove these lay layers, like the secret the secret uh, underpinning of this podcast is actually why I think you shouldn't get ordained. And, <laughs> or we need to make ordination a universal yeah. situation, right? Yeah. Like 
because I think people think that if you are ordained, then you have access to some kind of special spiritual something mm-hmm. that allows you to work in a church. And there's mm-hmm. less and less spaces where lay people can exercise their power and be employed in the work of church without being ordained. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's an interesting power dynamic to think about what are the ways that we can create more balance between the lay, lady and clergy, because we need both yep. and we need them to focus on different things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what made you say yes, ordination clergy? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I questioned it a lot. I was sort of, you know, cause I think whether I was a professional Christian or not, I was going to be deeply involved in church. Um, and whether or not I was a professional Christian, it would matter that I went to seminary because I, you know, I learned things through seminary that helped me to be, you know, a more faithful person and more deeply engaged with how faith intersects with justice. Um, whether or not I like would wear a collar. Um, and, so to some extent, I think for me, becoming ordained is rooted in thinking there are a lot of places where like young queer women are not given that microphone as much of um, uh, that that being an ordained clergy person gives you inherently. Um, and I don't like that that is the structure, but I also thought you know, this could be a place where I just doubt myself to a point of being like, oh, it's fine. I don't need to do that myself. Um, and then let it continue to be a lot of, um, straight white old men running the institutions. Um, so I think it, you know, it matters to me to be, you know, to be young and ordained, to be queer and ordained, to be a woman and ordained. Um, but I think it also matters to think what does the privilege of, having that ordination status also mean for, for right now and for long-term for where I can hand the mic to other people and to like elevate voices that are not my own. There's weird dynamics of like minor celebrity status of just being a pastor that like, you know, within your Mm -hmm. community, even if nobody beyond your church knows at all who you are, people listen to you. And there's, you know, places where it's like, Ooh, Mm -hmm. the pastor came to our meeting. Um, and in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways right now, I'm in a role where I'm kind of the the least of the of the clergy on staff to where I can kind of almost have a foot in both worlds of like it's not that exciting that Hannah showed up to something which I don't mean in a demeaning myself way but um I think it helps me stay a little bit more grounded towards like what does it mean to be like ooh la la the pastor walked in the room they're so fancy And I think as I get older and as I, you know, continue to be aware of my whiteness in different spaces, um, what can I do to kind of avoid the clergy celebrity um, danger that I think is a danger for everybody of being like, being a little bit fed by the, ooh, people think I'm special kind of thing. Um, And Because you also have to justify the institution in a way Mm -hmm. that doesn't as you get more power within the institution, like the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, I think is a progressive leader. He has said many things, but the ways in which he says it and the directness with which he says it mm-hmm. is probably not what he, if he was just, you know, with his buddies talking mm-hmm. um, because he still has to represent the institution. And so you have to figure out like, what is my place of navigating my progressive thoughts with maintaining 
some kind of institutional cohesiveness. Um, you don't want to tear down the entire, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing as a leader. Mm-hmm. But also, um, it's, it's kind of nice to be in that early stage of clergydom, especially in, because people don't pay attention to youth and young adult ministers, but yeah. you can kind of do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 just keep ignoring me as I transform children <laughs> and the future of the church. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting dynamic. Look over there. Yeah, look over there. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Don't pay attention as I give your children queer theology as a grounding mm-hmm. theology yep. <laughs> for their lives. Fun. I'm leading a meeting on Sunday that's very intentionally our lead pastor is not coming to because we're trying to convince a certain part of the church to let go of something that they don't want to let go of. Um, and, and it's kind of to be a, we're listening to you and I can be like, Oh, well I'll do what I can. You know, we'll see how it goes. Not in a, I mean, that sounds very manipulative and gross, but it really is thinking um, what does it look like to, you know, to recognize in some ways people feel less defensive of their things that they hold dear in front of me because they're like, well, she's not going to do anything about it anyhow. And so in some ways I can hear their more real feelings about, you know, we're looking at changing a worship service. And um, I think if people in that group were talking to our head of staff, they might be like, oh, we need to have all our points together so that you won't change our thing we love. Whereas in some ways I'm able to more be a low pressure, like we're just chatting. I'll bring back what I hear to the larger group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can be the grace. You can be the representative. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and options and exploration. Um, yeah. I kind of love that position. Like, yes, assume that I have no power so that I can wield all of my power in order to change the system for the better. Um, so there's two things that have come up for me when you've been talking. And that's the one is I'll come back to the worship stuff because I actually do want to hear more about how you're reinventing worship, but also the TikTok piece of being a messenger of love that you had to form your own theological understanding and base in order to articulate it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm realizing that as I was studying kind of formation experiences for clergy, that building of the theological base seems to be so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet sometimes it's like a misstep before we say yes to ordination. Mm, yeah. Can you, where, where, how, cause I, you make very succinct and very direct videos. So I have a tactical question, which is like, how long do you spend prepping for those things? <laughs> Way too long. <laughs> um, I, which in some ways is like, I, I mean, I started my TikTok just like a couple months ago and I was like, here we go. We're going to, I'm going to do a bunch of things. And I have not been as a pro, as much of a prolific TikToker as I thought I might be because it takes a while to say something meaningful. And I have found that some of the things that feel easier to make a succinct video about are the things that I feel like I've fully digested for myself. And, you know, to make a short video about why I love Good Friday and why, you know, we bring liberation theology into Good Friday feels like something that like is a little bit more accessible to do, even though it takes a long time to put together in a short format, because I'm not as much like grasping at a lot of different ideas I haven't thought through already. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
You asked yeah, me before the logistical. No, I, well, just well, I, it was no. That's exactly what I wanted to know. Like, how long does it take you to craft your theological perspective into what whatever a minute? Like, it's hard mm-hmm. to talk about the cross and the lynching tree mm-hmm. and uh, queer liberation theology all in us because I have tried and mm-hmm. I know that it is difficult. And I ended up doing a 20 minute episode when I was just trying to do like a five minute episode yeah. for Good Friday. Cause I too had struggled. I was like, I just, so now it's just gonna be about me. So I have often struggled with uh, this idea that Good Friday was, we are all sinners and we popped out as sinners mm-hmm. and now we just need some Jesus's blood and then we're all fine. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that doesn't, not saying about this work for me. So mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out how to express this like, Chris, that Jesus is divine and human, this, this disruption of binaries as the actual point of liberation for all of us. Mm-hmm. Living in the gray is yeah. actually, and living between places mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. kind of this disruption of this or that thinking um, is actually what liberation could feel like. Um, it's the first time I understood salvation. So but trying to figure out how to, I've said this like 15 times on the podcast, but how, how to do that in a way that is attractive to somebody who doesn't have the same academic framing and way of thinking um, can be hard. And also in a social media space where it's anything from a 10 year old to a 90 year old, like how yeah. are you thinking about your messaging and how much time are you spending just like consolidating your thoughts and what's that process look like for you? Those are too many questions, but I'm yeah, well, I can try to get at it because they're all good things. Um, it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to make a message succinct, even if you're just talking about like a 15 minute sermon or something. Um, it's hard to make things succinct. And I think it's been difficult for me to think about how to consider a very wide audience. And because of that, a very wide range of types of pushback you might get. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm really trying not to like give in to the haters kind of thing of, um, of Mm -hmm. of, of too much panicking about what are the, what's the negative pushback on this gonna be and how do I preemptively address that? And more to think what is, you know, the like 16 year old, queer kid who has never been able to, hasn't been part of a church that has a more expansive view of some of these things, what might they get from something like this? When I, now that I have started getting uh, more negative comments on some of my TikTok videos, it has slowed me down a little bit because it has more made me think, oh no, what if XYZ is taken in the wrong direction and not for a place of being afraid that someone will say something mean in a comment, though it's unpleasant. Um, but more from thinking, oh, I don't want to fuel the fire of people who think, you know, progressive Christians are just idiots who don't think about the Bible kind of, th- you know, and in order to make anything succinct and short, it's going to miss a lot of the nuance that is unavoidable. And any of these things, you know, and then someone will send back a comment where I think, oh, I have a great explanation for why I think this, but that's going to be another, you know, five minute video to explain why I feel that way. And sometimes I have tried to remind myself, okay, TikTok and social media things are a place where I might do some of that outward 
sharing a message to a broader community, but really my, my church and my community that I serve where people know me as a whole person has to be my priority. And so there's been times when I'm like, you know, I'm not going to get my cute, succinct TikTok video done this week because so-and-so's husband is on hospice and I need to go visit them. And I want to have a longer conversation with this member of the youth group about this thing. And, you know, there's things like that where it's like some of the richness of church community is built in those ongoing relationships where you can have a succinct message and know that people who have an earnest relationship with you can continue the conversation over coffee the next week or whatever, you know, and whereas social media ministry kind of things often feel a little bit more one-sided of like, I'll put this out in the world and you might like it or you might hate it. And we're not going to have an ongoing conversation. Um, so that's a, a yeah, the nuance is the part, sorry, the nuance is the part that, um, is important to me and what you're saying this mm-hmm. that what is a platform good for and what is it not possible what what may it not be ready to handle yet mm-hmm. and that nuance um the this is my whole self like I feel like this today but like actually I found it really snarky because I just sat before hours with somebody in hospice mm-hmm. <laughs> um there's a there and when you sit with somebody for four hours in hospice their family is a little bit more graceful with you as a yep. pastor because yep. <laughs> you're, you're not just saying social justice yeah. <laughs> and then not visiting them in the hospital. Because right. I think that that's also like for my progressive clergy friends, some of y'all be out here on the, on the gram, on the thing saying all the things about liberation and then don't call Miss Betty back. Yeah. Like, yep. Mm-hmm. That is that is a part of the social justice work as well. Is totally. calling back the old white lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though she's going to talk to you for two hours about the the bake sale, it's not about yeah. the bake sale. Miss <laughs> Betty is lonely. Um. Yep. Yep. So, but that nuance and and maybe because as someone who has stopped going to Sunday morning worship, what are the ways in the expansive? And this might bring us back to that worship question. Mm-hmm. expansively thinking what are the ways that we can create more space for mess and I think mm-hmm. I've stopped going to Sunday morning services because it's not a place for me to work out my mess yep yeah and it's a place for me to do a ritual and it's helpful it feeds me but it's not a place where I get to work out my mess mm. yeah oh, I, don't I need love to go there <laughs> I want I want worship to be a place where we can work out our mess and it's so mm-hmm. often not And I think that's something that I like hungered after, after leaving union, that sometimes at union Mm -hmm. felt like a place where you really could work out your mess and like have a conversation in the middle of worship that was like, I don't have a complete thought here, but I'm turning to my neighbor and talking about this thing. And Mm -hmm. so often worship feels a little performative and a little like, well, the preacher put together a lovely little message for us that they edited and proofread. And um, mm-hmm. now we get to go soak it in and then go off to brunch and maybe talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. What did they preach on today? It was so good. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want worship to be more expansive that way. And I think that's, I mean, so the church I'm at is fairly large and our our main worship service is like close to 300 people in it. 
And that's pretty big. That feels like a performance many days. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's tight down to, it's like, how do we fit it within the time block? And, oh no, the, the organ prelude went a little too long. So what, what else could get cut so that we can fit things in and, um, and I'm not saying that I'm mad at that because I do <laughs> love me a tight hour and yep, 15, yep. but, but there are other options as well. Sorry, continue. <laughs> right. And there's, there's things that might get cut, you know, like, um, we had a conversation in our worship planning meeting this week about an upcoming service where there's a lot of things happening. And someone was like, well, could we put this commissioning piece inside the children's sermon so that like, we just fit it in there. And I was like, I think that's cheaping out on the children. You know, the children's sermon is one of the most loose of the times in the whole worship service because there's room for a seven-year-old to be like, my dog got a new ball yesterday. And we can be like, cool. Although I have heard some wild things about children talking and they're like, ooh, maybe yeah. we shouldn't let you talk. In yeah. <laughs> but it's cool. It's still, it's still cool to watch even the mom and dad had a fight this morning. Uh-huh. And you're like, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, so trying to think, how do we make, you know, and so do do we say, oh, well this week there's not going to be a second hymn because there's too many things to fit in or or what gets cut or changed in order to have room for Mm -hmm. a conversational something. So the thing we're kind of starting to look at is currently our worship schedule has an early morning service that has communion every week that is a pretty low attendance service. And then there's like the larger main service. And we've been trying to think about, is there a place for the second service, whether it's still in the early morning slot or later on or in the evening to be a little bit more of a conversational space where maybe the sermons are not always like exactly fit in a 10 to 15 minute block. um, But it's a little bit of riffing on something from the text. And then a, here's some questions, turn to your neighbor. Um, what does it look like to have more responsive prayer things? Um, one of the things that really, that I loved in my church in college was that the prayer time was a people sticking their hands up and saying, you know, my aunt's having surgery this week and the pastor knew them well enough that then they could say, okay, we're praying for Cheryl. And that, you know, they already knew the, the mm-hmm. aunt's name. Um, and at a larger church, it can feel even more like a performance because the prayers are all something that we carefully wrote and edited and made tight um, rather than there being space for someone on a Sunday morning to say, this is really weighing on me this morning and I'd like to have it heard and held in community. And Epiphany Episcopal in Washington, D.C., and it has a lot of homeless folks because they have a big feeding ministry on Sunday morning. And so it would be like all these people kind of half asleep because it was cold outside that Sunday. And they tend, to, especially when it's cold weather and stuff, they have a lot more people who are trying to stay inside as long as possible. And um, they're like half asleep. And then at praise of the people, they all kind of wake up because everybody <laughs> had like, yes, I would also like you to pray for it. Like, you know? yeah. And it was, but there was something so beautiful about that. Like, yeah. The pearled earrings, big hat wearing, probably like her husband is work is like the secretary of state, and then the like homeless dude or the homeless lady with her four kids, mm-hmm. like that, that they can all say their intentions and desires yeah. for God's intercessions together was mm-hmm. kind of amazing and beautiful. 
Yeah. And even when I was in work, went to the cathedral in Vermont, um, just I used to, my mother was like, now you just get to hear all the gossip. Every time she would come visit, she'd complain about it a little bit. She's like, I just know everybody's business in your church. But yeah. <laughs> in yeah. some ways, that was the culture of the mm-hmm. space. And we all kind of wanted to know your business. So it yeah. worked well. Yeah. Um, sorry, but you were continuing on, on, on more. I like, I love interactive worship opportunities, even mm-hmm. if we are still doing the same patterns of ritual. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think there's something to saying, how do we make it comfortable and ritualistic? You know, where I think one of the things that is comforting to so many people of coming to church is you kind of know what to expect and you're not going to get randomly like pulled up, you know, to to have to do something that you didn't expect. Or, you know, it's like, I know what's going to happen. I know when I'm going to have to greet the person next to me. And Mm -hmm. one of the things in thinking about this other service is how do we try out some things that feel a little bit different while also holding it in enough safety of like, you know, we're not going to ask you to do something that feels super uncomfortable and we're Mm going to tell you what to expect as much as possible. And, um, and I think that's necessary on all fronts. I think there's also a lot of rituals that we just engage in with very little to no explanation, but in the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. it's like everybody knows that when I say the peace be with you, you know, then oh, then and also up and start greeting each other. <laughs> um, so I think there's something hospitable about explaining ourselves more, but also shaking up some of the the expectations. We'll see how that mm-hmm. actually goes, but. <laughs> I'm I'm all for it. I just think there has to be a plethora of options for people. Like there mm-hmm. does have to be a buffet a little bit in church yeah. world if we are to survive these changing times. Yeah. And in a way that isn't just about holding on to institution, but about actually living into what God is doing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that if we can be an example of various kinds of expressions of faith that are mm-hmm. still centered on a liberative, loving God. Um, I think we might make it through these times of alleged decline because I, I feel like people are hungering for spaces where they can be messy and problematic and complicated, yeah. particularly yeah. college students, right? mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what was the other thing that I, I heard you say was working with college students, refugees, you have a, how, okay, so here's, here's maybe where I'm going to close out. How do we make you not burnt out, Hannah? Mm. Because the, these are many different hats mm-hmm. that you are holding. Mm-hmm. Being a voice pocket, a voice pocket, that's not a thing. Voice <laughs> box for queer young lady. <laughs> and working with refugees, college students, young children, mm-hmm. hanging out at the hospice center. Like, how are you mm-hmm. caring for yourself and, and your faith? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, And I think it's something we all need to be engaging more. And I think it's part of the question about clergy and laity working together on things of how do we both share the like the the joys and the prestige sometimes of getting to do the things that look important. And also how do we share the like real in the muck work of it all? And um, I mean, unfortunately and frankly, I'm at a church that is really clergy led and that's partly because we have a number of us on staff and there's sort of become a culture of like, well, the pastors can do it. 
Um, and that sets us up for burnout, I think. But we also have a bunch of volunteers and lady who are burnt out as well because they're like, oh my gosh, we have to have everything work and we have to keep the systems going. And we don't, I don't want this ministry to die and no one else is doing it. So, you know, here is the 80 year old leader of that Bible study who keeps showing up to mm-hmm. lead it, even though she's got a lot of other things she could be focusing on. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a big question of mine of how do I take care of myself and avoid burnout? And um, I don't have a lot of great answers to that, except the like trying not to take myself too seriously. And one of the things that one of the things that my pastor in college who I was talking about, Kirsten, often said was like within her theology around Sabbath, it was a saying I'm not so important that nothing can't be done without me. And to kind of, you know, take yourself down a peg and be able mm-hmm. to say, I can say no to things and the ship isn't going to crash. Or if the ship crashes, maybe it doesn't matter if that ship crashes. Um, and I, in practice, I'm not always very good at doing that because it's very easy to feel like, ah, how do I, you know, everything is important and I don't want to let it down. Um, but I think it's something we all need to do, you know, people who are professional Christians and not, um, mm-hmm. of saying no to things and recognizing like you can only do so much. And I think some of what's difficult about church work is that the the social stuff is all tied up in the work stuff too. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are weeks where, I, where if I really counted all the time where I'm engaging with people from the church as hours of work, I'd be working way, way more hours than I should be. Um, but it's like, oh, well, I was at the picnic with such and such group. And like, that was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. So maybe it, you know, but I think one of the things I'm trying to do better is to count even the fun parts of ministry as like part of my work too, because if I discount all, you know, tonight I have a picnic with the women that I lead a Bible study with on Thursday afternoons. And we have this like end of semester picnic we're doing and it's going to be fun and lovely, but it's too tempting to be like after hours, that's not really part of my hours of the week. Um, but yeah. And if I I don't count it as such, then I, then it's too tempting to be like all the fun parts I'll just do in my free time. And then you don't want to go to work in the morning because you only have the unpleasant parts to do. So mm-hmm. I think it's a balance of all those things, but especially trying not to take myself too seriously. Well, now that your family has come over to the better side, uh, <laughs> we hope, just kidding, has stepped into the light of the Episcopalian. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, we are in full communion with the Pregbees, I think. No, because we don't have yeah. we don't have the apostolic succession thing in our ordination. Have, so, right. Y'all are gotta have a bishop there. <laughs> so that's correct. I forgot. There's been conversations, but I don't know where that's mm-hmm. all gonna land. <laughs> yeah, that people get real hung up on their apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because you all are considered. But I I what I do wish we had more of is the pastoral lens that you're you're talking about like Mm -hmm. what I think you're talking about too in trying to balance is because you're called pastors 
Mm-hmm. The pastoring is the is the center of your vocation. Mm-hmm. And priest ritual is the center of your vocation. Mm-hmm. Sacrament is the center of your vocation. Yeah. Um, and so I think we could learn something in our tradition from mm-hmm. that, from having a more pastoral, pastor identity as a sense mm-hmm. of vocation. Yeah. I've never Which has nothing to do with you, but interesting. Yeah. Um, Hannah, was there something I was supposed to ask you that I didn't ask you? That? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Spirit would have told me. I don't know how to wrap it up. I just enjoy talking to you all the time. This is like the end of our breakout sessions when we would be yeah. in class because so much of our seminary time was online. <laughs> this is so fun, though. Yeah, it has been a blessing to talk to you. I appreciate your time. It's so yeah. helpful. How should people follow you? How do they oh, um, see these wonderful TikTok videos and say nice things? Yeah, there you go. We need the nice things. I've also taken it as my mission to like go find other progressive clergy on TikTok and just like notice their TikToks that are getting a bunch of mean comments and be like, I love this. This is amazing. (laughs) So that's a great ministry. Um, I'm on TikTok as Reverend Hannah, like rev.hannah. So um, yeah, you can find me there. (laughs) Um. Any, what's your favorite video that you've made? What's the favorite thing that you've message you've offered that maybe mm-hmm. really resonated with your, your spirit or made you feel like this is why I do this? Maybe. <laughs> I gotta like remember what I've done. Um, so now I'm going on TikTok. <laughs> um, I will say you're making a bread one. The one that's yeah. um, about the, when you were making Monday Thursday. I really quite enjoyed your Monday Thursday video. I think yeah. that's what I was like. I need to talk to Hannah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that one was fun. And that one felt like um, I, I had first gotten on TikTok just kind of to make silly videos because I had a lot of ideas whenever I like would see TikTok trends and sounds and stuff. I was mm-hmm. like, I could make a really funny version of this as a pastor. Um, I still mm-hmm. have never made the Chrissy wake up about like people falling asleep while you're preaching, but um, I think that would be fun. But that trend is like really long over, but you know, we could bring it back. Um, Whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I might say the, the Maundy Thursday one, or just when I yeah, I had made a video on Easter Sunday with my colleagues that was just like to be kind of funny, but I was wearing a rainbow stole. And that was what got like thousands of like, I hate you, you're horrible kind of comments. So I turned off the comments on that. But then I made kind of a follow up video that was like a super, super succinct version of why I think it matters to be a like visible queer Christian and to embrace queer Christians in community. And there have been people who've commented on that or messaged me and reached out that I, where I felt like it landed somewhere among people who maybe needed to hear some of that hope. Um, and so that, I think that's meaningful to me and feels like, okay, this is a, a reason and a good thing to do that there are folks who are like, what? I didn't even realize this was possible. Um, and that, that brings me joy and feels good. <laughs> And if you ever need somebody to cause harm to people that are causing harm to you, because you can't do it, because you've got a collar on, you have plenty of lay friends from Union who would be yes. happy yes. to come help you out at any time, Hannah. <laughs> we can verbally assault. Good, good. No, we, won't, we, won't, we won't counter violence with violence. We can only counter it with love. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. So, well, we can have less grace than you do, though, publicly. There you go. <laughs> you can tell them about themselves. 
Um, thank you so much, Hannah, for your time. I'm just so, so grateful to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Pursuing Call. I can't wait to hear about how you are exploring God's voice so that you can participate in God's mission and dream for our world. Send your email and comments to Tamara at PursuingCall.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A at P-U-R-S-U-I-N-G-C-A-L-L dot You can also visit pursuingcall.com to learn more about what I'm exploring and envisioning and thinking about. Thank you so much and have a wonderful and beautiful day. Go in peace to love and serve.